I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Cysts can be raised at the surface of the skin, looking like a large blackhead. Well, that's what's wrong with me. Oh, hi! Uh, welcome to Leaves of Glen, here in the drawing room of the Leaves of Glen Mansion, where I read to you the hottest public domain books and short stories. Uh, this week, we're going to continue to read David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Uh, it's the eighth novel published in uh, 1850, and it's widely considered his most popular work. Before I get into the life of David Copperfield, as I do at the beginning of every episode, which everyone appreciates, uh, I want to mention a different podcast called Chat Smash. Uh, if you go to Twitter, it's uh, Chat Smash One is their username. And if you go to Linktree, L-A-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Chat Smash, uh, you can follow them. Why am I mentioning this podcast? Uh, because they were my 100th follower. And when they followed me, they must have checked to see what their ranking was. And they saw that they were 100 and tweeted back, Ha! 100th follower. And so I thought I should do something nice uh, to uh, thank them for following and being the 100th follower. And there's other people that followed as well. I can't name them all. Oh, my fan base is unlimited. So I uh, thought I'd mention them here. I listened to their most recent episode. I gotta say that I like it. I think I'm gonna be a subscriber. Uh, I'm a, kind of a fussy boy. I don't subscribe to everything. But uh, they're pretty good. They were just sitting around chatting, and they're trying to recommend movies and games and other things. But instead, they uh, just kept talking about uh, Rango the entire time. Rango with Johnny Depp starring... Uh, then they move on to different topics and then come back to Rango again. Yeah, move on to different topics and just come back to Rango all over again. So, if anything, listen to their show just to hear the psychology of uh, what movies truly disturb them on a base level. Well, let's get into uh, uh, Charles Dickens. He was born the 7th of February, 1812. Nah, but he died the 9th of June, 1870. Uh, fun fact... Uh, he always had items and furniture arranged in a particular order. Uh, although it's not proven, many believe that Dickens had obsessive-compulsive disorder. Uh, this was because he would always rearrange the furniture in the hotel room he stayed in. It's also alleged that Dickens would always inspect his children's bedrooms and point out uh, what was untidy and, uh, and not neat. Either way, Dickens wanted things to be in order around him. This website that I get this from, uh, discoverwalks.com, I'm starting to think it's one of those websites where they just fill it with facts and it's poorly translated from whatever the uh, original language is. So uh, I'm reading these things and I kind of have to correct for them. Uh, recap the previous chapter. 
Well, David finishes school, and he's trying to get a job. His aunt says, uh, go to Yarmouth. Go hang out in the boat with those people and, uh, and look into what you're going to do for a living. So before he sets out to London to go to Yarmouth, he says goodbye to all his friends in Canterbury, and during his visit to the Wickfields, Agnes confesses that she's worried about her dad's drinking problem and also the influence that Uriah Heep has over him. And during his visit to Dr. Strong, the subject of Jack Malden ugh, comes up again. And turns out he's a big baby and he can't handle being in India, so they want to send him back. He whines about it in his letters to them. Uh, Mr. Wickfield shows his suspicions of Mrs. Strong by trying to keep her from getting close to her or touching Agnes. David sets out his journey to London and tries to act like a grown-up by using a deep voice. And... Uh, but he winds up staying at the, the same uh, coach, hotel, whatever you want to call that thing, where there was a waiter there that used him uh, as a way of getting him to order food that he won't eat, so then the waiter will eat it. I guess they don't have minimum wage there. I don't know what's going on. Uh, so he arrives in London and happens to see Steerforth at his hotel, Steerforth the jerk, and they get uh, their old friendship back in order. Well, that's the grandfather clock, uh, so why don't we dive into the story? Chapter 20. Steerforth's Home. When the uh, chambermaid tapped at my door at 8 o'clock and informed me that my shaving water was outside, I felt severely the, the, I felt severely the having no occasion for it. All right, whatever. And blushed in my bed. Oh, chambermaid? Do they have a person that literally just picks up your chamber pot where you poop and pee in? Is that the job? That's weird. And there's a person... Well, no wonder he's embarrassed and blushing in his bed. Is he blushing because he didn't use it? I'll move on. I don't know why I'm going hot so early in the episode. Uh, the suspicion that she laughed, too. She did when she said it. Prayed upon my mind all the time I was dressing. It gave me, I was conscious, a sneaking and guilty air uh, when I passed her on the staircase as I was going down to breakfast. Whoa, I want to know more about what's going on here. The dynamics of, did he poop too much and she's laughing at him? Or is she laughing that he's such a baby he doesn't poop and pee very much into his chamber pot? I was so sensitively aware, indeed, of being younger than I could have wished, that for some time I could not make up my mind. I had to pass her at all. Wow, this feces thing is a real problem. Under the abnormal circumstances of the case, but hearing her there with a broom stood peeping out a window at King Charles on horseback, surrounded uh, by a maze of hackney coaches, and looking, uh, well, anything but regal in a drizzling rain and dark brown fog, until I was admonished by the waiter that the gentleman was waiting for me. It was not in the coffee room that I found Steerforth expecting me, but in a, a snug private apartment, red curtained and, and turkey carpeted, where the fire burnt bright, and a fine hot breakfast was set forth on a table covered with a clean cloth uh, and a cheerful miniature of the room. What? And a cheerful miniature of the room? They have like a small model of the same room you're sitting in? The fire, the breakfast, steer forth and all was shining in the little round mirror over the sideboard. 
I was rather bashful at first, Steerforth, being so self-possessed and elegant and superior to me in all respects, age included, but his easy patronage soon put that to rights and made me quite at home. I could not uh, enough admire the change he had wrought in the Golden Cross or compare the dull forlorn state I had held yesterday with this morning's comfort and this morning's entertainment. As to the waiter's familiarity, it was quenched as if it had never been. He attended us, I may say, in sackcloth and ashes. Now, Copperfield, said Steerforth, when we are alone, I should like to hear what you are doing. And uh, where you're going, and all about you. I feel as if you were my property. Glowing with pleasure to find that he had still this interest in me, I told him how my aunt had proposed a little expedition that I had before me, and, and whether it tended. As you are in no hurry then, said Steerforth, come home with me to Highgate and stay a day or two. You will be pleased with my mother. Ah, she's a little vain and, and prosy about me. But that you can forgive her, and she'll be pleased, pleased with you. I should like to be as sure of that as you are kind enough to say you are, I answered, smiling. Oh, said Steerforth, everyone who likes me has a claim on her that is sure to be acknowledged. Then I think I shall be a favorite, said I. Good, said Steerforth, come and prove it. Yeah, we'll go and see the lions for an hour or two. It's something to have a fresh fellow like you uh, show them to. Uh, and they will journey out uh, to Highgate by the coach. I could hardly believe that I uh, was in a dream and that I should wake presently in number 44 to the solitary box in the coffee room and the familiar waiter again after I had written to my aunt and told her of my fortunate meeting with my admired old schoolfellow and my acceptance of his invitation. We went out in a hackney chariot, and saw a panorama and uh, some other sights, and, and took a walk to the museum, where I could not help observing how much Steerforth knew on infinite variety of subjects, and of how little account he seemed to make his knowledge. You'll take a high degree at college, Steerforth, said I, if, if, if you have not done so already, and they will have a good reason to be proud of you. I take a degree, cried Steerforth. Not I. Oh, my dear Daisy. Will you mind my calling you Daisy? Well, that's... <laughs> that's insulting. Not at all. Well, idiot, said I. Uh, that's a good fellow, my dear Daisy. Yeah, this is getting weird. And Steerforth, laughing. I have not the least desire or intention to distinguish myself in that way. I have done quite sufficient for my purpose. I find that I am heavy company enough for myself as I am. But the fame, I was beginning. You romantic Daisy. This is just, the Daisy thing is not a fan, said Steerforth, laughing still heartily. Why should I eh, trouble myself that a parcel of heavy-headed fellows may gape and hold up their hands? Let them do it at some other man. There's fame for him, and he's welcome to it. Well, I was abashed at having uh, made so great a mistake and was glad to change the subject. Fortunately, it was not difficult to do, for Steerforth could always pass from one subject to another with carelessness and, 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 and lightness that were his own. Lunch succeeded to our seeing, sightseeing, and short winter day wore away so fast that it was dusk when the stagecoach uh, stopped with us at a, an old brick house at uh, High... 
Hagate? Eh, whatever. On the summit of the hill. It's broken up weird. I'm probably just written. Whatever. And an elderly lady, though not very far advanced in her years, with a proud carriage and a handsome face, was in the doorway as we alighted and greeting Steerforth as my dearest James. Folded him in her arms. To this lady he presented me as his mother. And she gave me a stately welcome. There's a a genteel, old-fashioned house, very quiet and orderly. From the windows of my room, I saw all London lying in the distance like a, like a, like a great vapor, uh, with here and there some lights twinkling through it. I only had time in dressing to glance at the solid furniture, the framed pieces of work, done, I suppose, by Steerforth's mother when she was a girl, and some pictures in crayons of ladies with, uh, with, 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 with powdered hair. And, and bodices coming and going on the walls as the newly kindled fire crackled and sputtered when I was called to dinner. Now there's a second lady in the dining room of a eh, slight sort of figure, dark and not agreeable to look at, but with some appearance of uh, eh, good looks too, who attracted my attention, perhaps because I had not expected to see her, perhaps because I found myself sitting opposite to her, perhaps because of something really remarkable in her. She had uh, black hair and eager uh, black eyes and was thin and had a, a scar upon her lip. Oh, is it, a, is it an old scar? I should rather call it a seam, <laughs> for it's not discolored, and had healed years ago, which had once cut through her mouth downward toward the chin, but was now barely visible across the table except above and on her upper lip, the shape of which it had altered. I concluded in my own mind that she was about yeah, 30 years of age and that she wished to be married. He can conclude that just by looking at her, that she wishes to be married. And she was a, a little dilapidated, yeah, like a, like a house. But having been so long to let yet had, as I have said, an appearance of, of good looks, her thinness seemed to be the effect of some wasting fire within her, which found a, a vent in her gaunt eyes. <laughs> wow, that's a description. She was introduced as Miss Dartle, and both Steerforth and his mother called her Rosa. I found that uh, she lived there and had been for a long time Miss Steerforth's uh, companion. Oh, well, that's interesting. That's a little twist. It appeared to me that she never said anything she wanted to say outright, but hinted it and made a great deal more of it by this practice. For example, when Miss Steerforth observed, more in jest than earnest, that she feared her son led uh, but a wild life at college, Miss Dartle put in thus, uh, uh, really? You know how ignorant I am. And that I only ask for information. Uh, but isn't it always so? <laughs> I thought that kind of life was on all hands understood to be. Uh, eh? It is education for a very grave profession, if you mean that, Rosa, said Steerforth, answer with some coldness. Oh, yes, it's very true, returned Mrs. Dartle. But isn't it, though? I want to be put right. If I'm wrong, isn't it really? Really what? said Mrs. Steerforth. Oh, you mean it's not? Returned Mrs. Dartle. Well, I'm very glad to hear it. Now I know what to do. That's the advantage of asking. I shall never allow people to talk before me about eh, wastefulness and prolif prolifigy. 
and so forth in connection with that life anymore. And you will be right, said Mrs. Steerforth. My son's tutor is a conscientious gentleman. And if I had not implicit reliance... Oh, what's happening to me on this episode? On my son, I should have reliance on him. Should you, said Miss Dartle. Dear me, contentious is he? Really contentious now? Yes, I'm convinced of it, said Mrs. Steerforth. Oh, how very nice, exclaimed Miss Dartle. What a comfort. Really contentious? (laughs) Then he's not, but of course he can't be. If he's really contentious, well, I shall be quite happy in my opinion of him from this time. You can't think how it elevates him, in my opinion, to know for certain that he's really contentious. Her own views of every question and her correction of everything that was said to which she was opposed, Miss Dartle insinuated in some way that sometimes I could not conceal from myself with great power, though in contradiction even of Steerforth. An instance happened before dinner was done, Miss Steerforth speaking to me about my intention of going down to Suffolk, and I had at hazard uh, how glad I should be if Steerforth would only go there with me and explaining to him that I was going to see my old nurse and Miss Peggotty's family, and I reminded him of the boatman whom I had seen at school. Oh, oh, ah, that bluff fellow, said Steerforth. Uh, He had a son with him, hadn't he? No, that was his nephew, I replied, whom he adopted, though, as a son, and he's a very pretty little niece, too, whom he adopted as a daughter. In short, his house, or rather, uh, is a boat, for he lives in one on a dry land, is full of people who are objects of his generosity and kindness. You would be delighted to see that household. Hey, should I? said Steerforth. Well, I should think I should. I must see what can be done. I would be worth a journey, not to mention the pleasure of a journey with you, Daisy. Ugh. To see that sort of people together and to make one of them. My heart leaped with a new hope of pleasure, but it was in reference to the tone in which he had spoken of that sort of people that Miss Dartle, whose sparkling eyes had been watchful of us, now broke in again. Well, this uh, seems like a good spot for me to take you to my bedroom. Yeah, yeah, so you come to listen to my episode, and now I'm taking you upstairs to my silky bed. Come on! I read to you the hottest upcoming romance novels from Penguin Random House Books. Uh, put on these fishnets and, uh, and here, put on some lipstick. But make it all crooked and kind of kind of weird. Why? I want you to look like a prostitute. You'll see where this is going as I review a new upcoming romance novel called The Business of Lovers. A novel by Eric Jerome Dickey. That's a fun little name. All is fair in love and lust in New York Times bestselling author Eric Jerome Dickey's tale of two brothers, four women, and the business of desire. Uh, Mind you, I'm sitting here fuming that it's another New York Times best-selling author. It seems like you do almost nothing to become a New York Times best-selling author. Uh, unlike their younger brother, Andre, whose star as a comedian is rising, neither Dwayne 
nor Brick Dunquestney, <laughs> what are these names, is having luck with his career. And they're unluckier still in love. Former child star Dwayne has just been fired from his latest acting role and barely has enough money to get by after paying child support to his spiteful former lover. While Brick struggles to return to his uninspiring white-collar job after suffering the dual blows of a, a health emergency and a nasty breakup with the woman he still loves. This is all dramatic and completely random. Neither brother is looking to get entangled with a woman anytime soon, but love and lust has a way of twisting the best laid plans. When Dwayne tries to reconnect with his teenage son, he finds himself fighting to separate his animosity from his attraction for his son's mother, Frenchie. What are these names? And Brick's latest source of income, chauffeur and bodyguard to three smart independent women temporarily working as escorts in order to get back on their feet, opens a... What? <laughs> opens a world of possibility in both love and money. Penny, Christina, and Mocha Latte. <laughs> no plenty of female Johns uh, who would pay top dollar for a few hours with a man like Brick. If he can let go of his past, embrace his unconventional new family, and allow strangers to become lovers. Eric Jerome Dickey paints a powerful point. Is it a powerful portrait? Uh, of the family we have, the families we create, and every sexy moment in between. So there you have it. The business of lovers. Completely random. Uh, probably doesn't make any sense if you read it. But go pick it up for 17 bucks at Barnes & Noble or Books A Million or Bookshop.org or Hudson Booksellers or IndieBound or Powell's or Target or Walmart or Amazon uh, on March 30th. That's coming up soon. You can get all excited about that. Just lay around in your bed thinking about it. Well, I'm not horny anymore. Uh, so with that, why don't you put your normal clothes back on and we'll go back into the library to continue reading this book. Yeah, right. Where did we leave off? Uh, Miss Dartle is playing dumb about uh, Steerforth the son being a pain in the butt. So she says, oh, but really? Do tell me. Are they, though? She said. Are they what? And who are what? Said Steerforth. They're that sort of people. Are they really animals and clods and beings of another order? I want to know so much. I'm getting sick of this person. Why? There's a pretty wide separation between them and us, said Steerforth, with indifference. Uh, they are not to be expected to be as sensitive as we are. Their delicacy is not to be shocked or hurt easily. Well, it's because they don't have uh, the luxury of laying around choosing not to go to college. They are wonderfully virtuous, I dare say. Some people contend for that, at least. And I am sure I don't want to contradict them, but they have not very fine natures. Ugh. <laughs> they may be thankful that, like their coarse, rough skins, they are not easily wounded. Really? said Mrs. Dartle. Well, I don't know now, and I have been better pleased than to hear that. It's so consoling. It's such a delight to know that when they suffer, they don't feel. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Sometimes I've been quite uneasy for that sort of people, but now I shall just dismiss the idea of them altogether. Live and learn. 
I had my doubts, I confess, but now they're cleared up. Oh, I don't know. And, uh, and now I do know. And that shows the advantage of asking, don't it? Well, I believe that Steerforth had said what he had in jest or to draw Miss Dartle out, and I expected him to say as much when she was gone, but uh, we two were sitting before the fire, and he merely asked me what I thought of her. Uh, she is very clever, is she not? I asked. Clever? Uh, he brings every She brings everything to a grindstone, said Steerforth, and sharpens it, as, as she has sharpened her own face and figure these past years. Uh, she has worn herself away by constant sharpening. She is all edge. And what a remarkable scar that is upon her lip, I said. Steerforth's face fell, and he paused for a moment. Why, the fact is, he returned, I did that. By an unfortunate accident, exclamation point. No, I was a young boy, and she exasperated me, and I threw a, I threw a hammer at her. A promising young angel I must have been. I was deeply sorry to have touched uh, such a painful theme, but that was useless now. She's borne the mark ever since, as you see, said Steerforth, and she'll bear it to her grave if she ever rests in one, though I can hardly believe she ever will rest anywhere. She has the mother. She was the motherless child of a sort of cousin of my father. She, he died one day. My mother, who was then a widow, brought her here to be company to her. And she has a, a couple thousand pounds of her own and uh, saves the interest of it every year to add to the, to the principal. There's the history of Miss Rosa Dartle for you. And I have no doubt she loves you like a brother, question mark, said I. Humph, exclamation point, reported Steerforth, looking at the fire. Some brothers are not loved over much, and some love, but can't help yourself. Copperfield, I'll drink the daisies of the field and compliment to you, and the lilies of the valley that toil, toil not, neither do they spin in compliment to me. The more shame for me. A moody smile that had overspread his features cleared off as he said this merrily, and he was his own frank, winning self again. I could not help glancing at the scar with a, with a painful interest. We went into tea. It was not long before I observed that it was the most susceptible part of her face. And that, when she turned pale, that the mark altered first and became a dull, lead-colored streak, lengthening out to its full extent like a, like a mark. An invisible ink brought to the fire. There was a little altercation between her and Steerforth about a cast of the dice at the backgammon when I thought her for one moment in a storm of rage. Oh my God, none of that had a period. And now I got a semicolon where I can actually take a break. And then I saw it start forth like the old writing on the wall. Period. Oh my Lord. It was no matter of wonder to, to me to find Miss Steerforth devoted to her son. She seemed to be able to speak or think about nothing else. She showed me his picture as an as a, as a infant in a locket with some of his baby hair in it. And she showed me his picture as she had been when I first knew him and she wore at her breast his picture as he was now. All the letters he had ever written to her she kept in a cabinet near her own chair by the fire, and she would have read some of them, and I should have been very glad to hear them too if he had not interposed and coaxed her out of the design. Now, said Mr. Creakles, my son tells me that you became acquainted, said Mrs. Steerforth, as she and I were talking at the table. While they played backgammon together, uh, indeed, I recollect his speaking at the time of a pupil younger than himself who had taken his fancy there. 
but your name, as you suppose, had not lived in my memory. That's a pretty wordy way of saying, oh, he's kind of talked about you. He was very generous and noble to me those days, I assure you, ma'am, said I, and I stood in need of such a friend. I should have been quite crushed without him. He is always generous and noble, said Mrs. Steerforth proudly. I subscribe to this with all my heart. God knows she knew I did, for the stateliness of her manner already abated toward me, except uh, when she spoke in praise of him, and then her air was always lofty. It is not a fit school generally for my son, said she, far from it. But there were particular circumstances to be considered at the time, of more importance even than my selection. Uh, my son's high spirit made it desirable that he should be placed with some man who felt his superiority and would be content to bow himself before it. And we found such a man there. Oh, I knew that, knowing the fellow. And yet I did not despise him the more for it, but thought it a redeeming quality in him if he could be allowed any grace for not resisting one so irresistible as Steerforth. My son's great capacity was tempted on there by feeding a voluntary emulation and conscious pride, the fond lady went on to say. He would have risen against all constraint, but he found himself the monarch of the place, and he haughtily determined to be worthy of his station. It was like himself. I echoed with all my heart and soul that it was uh, like himself. So my son took of his own will, and so on no compulsion, to the course of which he always, when it is his pleasure, outstrip every competitor, she pursued. My son informs me, Mr. Copperfield, that you were quite devoted to him, and that when you met yesterday, you made yourself known to him with tears of joy. I should be affected woman if I made any pretense of uh, being surprised by my son's inspiring such emotions, but I cannot be indifferent to anyone who's so sensible of his merit, and I'm very glad to see you here, and can assure you that he feels an unusual friendship for you, and that you may rely on his protection. Well, Miss Darnold played backgammon as eagerly as, as she did everything else, if I had seen her first at the board, I should have fancied that her figure had got thin and her eyes had got, uh, got large over that pursuit and no other in the world. But I am very much mistaken if she missed a word of this or lost a look of mine as I received it with the utmost pleasure and honored by Miss Steerforth's confidence, felt older than I had done since I left Canterbury. When the evening was uh, pretty far spent and the tray of glasses and decanters came in, Steerforth promised over the fire that he would be uh, he would seriously think of going down into the country with me. Eh, there's no hurry, he said. A week hence would do. And his mother's hospitality said the same. While we were talking, he more than once called me Daisy, which is so messed up, which brought Miss Dartle out again. But really, Mr. Copperfield, she asked, is it a nickname? And why does he give it to you? Is it, eh, because he thinks you young and innocent? I am so stupid in these things. Oh, she's a passive-aggressive person. Oh, she hates this kid. She's constantly needling. Because he broke her lip. I colored in replying that I believed it was. Oh, ah, ah, said Miss Duddle. Now I am glad to know that. I ask for information, and I'm glad to know it. He, he thinks you young and innocent, and that you are his friend. Well, that's quite delightful. 
She went to bed uh, soon after this. Miss Steerforth retired too. Steerforth and I, uh, after lingering for half an hour over the fire, talking about Traddles. Oh, I miss Traddles. Traddles was a good guy. And all the rest of them at Old Salem House went upstairs together. Steerforth's room was next to mine, and I went in to look at it. Ah, it was a picture of comfort, full of easy chairs and cushions, and footstools, worked by his mother's hand. She built everything in this house. This is ridiculous. And with no sort of thing omitted that could uh, help to render it complete. Finally, her handsome features looked down on her darling from a portrait on the wall, as if it were even something to her that her likeness should... Watch him while he slept. This is all very creepy and controlling. I found the fire burning clear enough in my room by this time, and the curtains drawn before the windows and round the bed, giving a very snug appearance. I sat down in a great chair upon the hearth to meditate on my happiness. and had enjoyed the contemplation of it for some time when I found a, a likeness of Miss Dartle looking eagerly at me from above the chimney piece. Oh, it was a, a startling likeness, and necessarily had a startling look. The painter hadn't made a the scar, but I made it, and there it was, coming and going, now confined to the upper lip, as I had seen it at dinner, and now showing the whole extent of the wound inflected by the hammer, as I had seen it when she was passionate. I wondered, eh, peevishly, why they couldn't put her anywhere else instead of quartering it on me. To get rid of her, I undressed quickly, extinguished my light, and, and went to bed. But I fell asleep. I could not forget that she was still there, looking. Is it really, though, I want to know? And then I awoke in the night, and I found that I was uneasily asking all sorts of people in my dreams whether it really was or not without knowing what I meant. Well, uh, what happened in this chapter? David agrees to visit Steerforth's home in Highgate and meet his widowed mother. As they make their way there, Steerforth uh, says he's going to Oxford, but doesn't, uh, he doesn't want to graduate or get a degree because it's not, quote-unquote, fashionable. When they arrive at the house, they meet Mrs. Steerforth, who thinks everything about her son. She only wears, like, five photos of him on her. Uh, and Miss Rosa Dartle. Uh, her companion. Miss Rosa Dartle has a strange way of speaking and a scar on her face from a childhood accident, which involved Steerforth throwing a hammer at her because he's, he's just a jerk from birth. Mrs. Steerforth explains that uh, she sent her son to Salem House so that he could be the highest-ranking student there and get special treatment, so she's already crippled him. Uh, Steerforth proposes that he accompany David to Yarmouth and meet the people there. Uh, he says it'll be a, a funny to see poor people in their natural environment. He doesn't think very or highly of poor people. So, Steerforth's a jerk, but uh, David just loves him. What's good about this? Nothing. Because he ran into the turd Steerforth, who's going to influence him in the worst possible way. What sucks? Uh, Mrs. Dartle's picture is in the guest bedroom. I have a house. I don't have an extra bedroom, but if I did have an extra bedroom, uh, I wouldn't put a picture of, like, my friend Corey on the wall staring down at you. Just weird. Uh, uh, what's the reason behind that? What do we learn? Well, we uh, get to learn more about Steerforth's character. He was already kind of a, a pushy, weird, controlling jerk back at the school. We learned that he's just a horrible human being. 
He's got no discipline. He's a spoiled brat. His mom uh, lavishes praise on this idiot child and uh, just loves everything about him. Keeps every letter he's ever written and has all these photos of him. Uh, he acts as if he owns the world and people should do what he wants. Uh, Steerfoth uh, knows, uh, has no understanding of the straits that other people live with and treats uh, life like a game that he's uh, pretty much already won. Uh, so David's positive impressions of him are weirdly reinforced against all common sense as Steerforth just takes a big old dump on him. Well, there's that for you. Uh, as a little side note, tomorrow I'm going over to my sister's house because I have a cyst on my shoulder. I've had it for years. I went to the doctor and said, what is this thing? It looks like a big old blackhead on my shoulder. And he said, after doing some tests, Oh, it's a cyst. Uh, a cyst near the surface of your skin. And I said, is there anything to do about it? He goes, no. And he said, uh, it's uh, called a big old uh, blackhead. You just have to live with it. And I said, doctor, with your you know, medical language, is that the best you can come up with is big old blackhead? And he thought for a second. He looked at me and he said, uh, Maximus Blackhead. All of this is true. I'm not making that up. Uh, and so... Tomorrow, my sister, who works in dermatology, says she promises she can get rid of it. I don't know what she plans on doing, but she says, all I got to do is I got to bring some tools and I'm going to get rid of that thing and you'll never have it again. I've lived with it for like 20 years. So this is going to be weird and gross. So think about that as we end this episode uh, here on Leaves of Glen, and I will see you next week. Ah, uh, well, it appears you found me in the part of the podcast I hate the most where I tell you all about the places on the internet where you can find me. You can tell I hate this because of the sound effects making it sound like a stormy night uh, in the drawing room of the damned. Now, there's there's that. Uh, I, I, are you cool? I like cool people. It's the reason why I got involved in this business to begin with, just to meet cool people. Not losers. So if you're cool, uh, feel free to go over to my website, uh, nuzzlehouse.com. You can see a backlog of everything I've ever read, uh, along with episodes from the Book Boys and uh, blah, blah, blah. You can also find me on Instagram, uh, which is uh, House Nuzzle. And conveniently enough, uh, Twitter, which is also at House Nuzzle. Annoyingly, YouTube made me pick a name instead of just a house nuzzle. So you got Glenn Nuzzles. So I guess you search for that if you want to watch a screen that doesn't do anything and just hear my voice. Uh, and since, uh, since I think you might be cool, you can always just email me directly. Glenn.nuzzles at gmail.com But don't, uh, don't email if you're a, a nerdlinger or a dork. Now, back to business. I can't believe I drank all of them already. There's one left. <laughs>